0: Ahoy there, me hearties, and welcome to the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name is Matt Valor. This is episode three of The Second Voyage. It's the 11th day on the 11th month, 100 years after the signing of the armistice. I've just observed the silence to remember the dead, those who gave their lives voluntarily and those who gave them against their will. This is an episode on sacrifice. It feels appropriate to me that I'm able to record it on this anniversary moment. We're reading the story today of Abraham and Isaac, chapter 22 of Genesis, in which a father who has waited his whole life for a son and heir is then asked by Elohim to sacrifice him, to burn him with fire on the mountain of Moriah. This story is one that galls me and moves me. I wrestled with it. I found it the hardest chapter of all of Genesis so far to translate. It is a terrible tale of apocalyptic consequence. It rails against every type of ethical standard and demands this outrage. For me, it, it reached down inside me and churned me i hate it on one level i hated to read it and translate it to be with it and yet living with it reading it rereading it translating it wondering about it and doing so at this time of memory of memory of terrible things past and the life that follows has been a a powerful profound experience for me and i want to narrate some of that with you today. This episode is going to be structured around one of the most important readings of this story of the near sacrifice of Isaac in a work called The Gift of Death by the philosopher Jacques Derrida, who we talked about in the Majian Voyage in our episode uh, episode 6 on the Tower of Babel. Now, I should warn you that this episode does contain more complex than average ideas. But stay with me because we'll come back to these several times over the course of this voyage. But they set the scene for the journey we're taking. Now, in the last episode, we were back in the Oxford pub with a group of men, including Moses, uh, discussing how historical fiction really works. Well, in this episode, Moses has found his way into London, waited for a delayed train and eventually gone through the channel tunnel on the Eurostar to Paris. He's in a cafe on a Parisian street, inside the brain of Jacques Derrida. And there's a bunch of men round the table. This is the setting for Derrida's work, The Gift of Death. At least, it's how I imagine it. There's no café in his text, but it seems like an easier way to explain what's going on in the work of a man who is fantastically complex to read, but whose insights, for me, have been repeatedly productive. So I'm going to try and simplify it by staging a conversation between the thinkers that Derrida reads. The way that Derrida writes and thinks he can't be summarized without excluding things that could prove important in a different reading. And so I'm just not going to be able to achieve that. But I want to give you a way in into this profound reading of this story of Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac. So as Moses arrives at this cafe in Paris, the sun is shining, music is in the air, and as he throws his travelling cloak over a stool, three other men sit round a table, sipping espresso. There's Jan Patochka, 20th century Czech philosopher. There's 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and 20th century German philosopher Martin Heidegger. As Moses takes his seat, Jan Patochka is holding the floor, He puts down his coffee and leans in. I want to tell you the history of Europe. It is the story of the secret development of responsibility. In our pagan past, there was no concept of the individual. Our sacred rites were animalistic. They were orgiastic, demonic even. They were without responsibility because there was no sense of the individual to be responsible. All boundaries were communal. But then, my friends, came Plato. And he wrote of the cave with its shadows, those earthly apparitions of abstract heavenly forms, a division between body and soul, in which the soul is immortal, the body flailing flesh. And in that cave is birthed the idea that death is not a collective experience, but an individual destiny. The individual, the philosopher, prepares for death by attending to the immortality of the soul. They deny the body in order to prioritize the soul. And they do this by attending to the abstract Objective ideal of good. Plato's great invention was the idea of a good that exists objectively out there to which I must attain. And the task of caring for my own soul in preparation for my death gives birth to the idea of the individual. No longer do we imagine ourselves as a collective, but as an individual preparing for death. But then, my friends, continues Patochka, comes the next great innovation, and this is the advent of Christianity. Christianity is such an important event in this genealogy of responsibility Because in the Christian imagination, there is a God who addresses me as a subject. I am no longer simply caring for my own soul in order to attain to an abstract ideal of the good. But there is a person who addresses me. And so now my sense of responsibility, my sense of myself as an individual is not an abstract ethical relation, but a personal relation. I become a subject, not in relation to an object, but a subject who is addressed personally. I become an I to his thou. Now my sense of responsibility is not to attain to an ideal, but to respond to a person to the call of an other. This is how European responsibility developed. The problem is, continues Patochka, we have never really been Christian. We might have been Christian in Europe for well over a thousand years, but that Christianity was deeply influenced by Plato. Europe has never really tried Christianity without Platonism. And so this address that we are subject to from another, from God, is not simply a personal address, a holy mystery to which we must figure out a response. But because of the influence of Plato, it transposes the abstract ideal of a good into goodness, the personal demand of an ethical relationship. This God is characterized by infinite self-sacrifice, and so his goodness is infinite. Our ethical response is therefore always already inadequate. We stand guilty before we've even begun. Now, I just want to clarify what Patochka is talking about here, because... The fastest growing forms of Christianity in this 21st century moment all offer a personal relationship with God. But that's not the kind of relationship that Patochka is describing. He's not a Pentecostal. Pentecostalism emphasizes the familiarity of that relationship with God, becoming familiar with God. Patochka's idea of the God who addresses us is decidedly unfamiliar. God is an other, a hidden other, a mystery, a terrifying, tremendous mystery. He is describing a Christianity writ large across the last 1,500 years of European history that has shaped European philosophy and our ideas of how we understand ourselves, whether any of us would identify as Christian or not. Patochka takes a small sip from his espresso. The thing is, he says, just as Christianity secretly included the Platonism it tried to replace, so Plato unknowingly included the paganism he sought to reject. The secret mysteries of the pagan rites are transposed to the secret mystery of how to attain to the good, a quest even for the philosophers. And so through its inclusion of Platonism, Christianity incorporates the secret mystery of the pagan rites. That as we are addressed by this infinite goodness that demands a response that we can never make, we are plunged into irresponsibility the incapability of producing a response-able, a responsible life. So Christianity is constantly involved in the practice of absolution. While Plato creates the individual as a soul preparing for death, Christianity develops the individual as a subject perpetually anxious about death. The Platonic idea of sacrifice is denial of the bodily desires in order to prioritize the immortal soul. The Christian idea of sacrifice is an entire self-sacrifice, an orientation towards a self-death, as penance for the unmeetable gulf that exists because of the ethical relationship with the God who constitutes my subjectivity as an individual who, before all else, is in an ethical relationship to an other. Now, I think I need to interrupt Patochka just for a moment, because I can imagine that some of you might be thinking, well, surely the whole Protestant innovation in Christianity was designed to deal with some of this. And there's lots that could be said about that, but I think it's worth noting that while the idea of salvation by faith alone is designed to reduce some of the anxiety associated with death and to remove the need for perpetual absolution and penance, it still doesn't change the fundamental structure of Christianity's idea of the human subject God still addresses me as a subject, and as a result of that address, I am placed into an impossible ethical relation, one I can never adequately fulfil. So back in Derrida's cafe, Martin Heidegger pipes up, Jan, you are underestimating the gift of death. My being in the world is a being towards death. That is the one thing I know for certain, that one day I will die. Nobody else can die in my place. Somebody might die for me in the sense that they give their life to keep me safe for a while. But nobody can die in my place and thereby take my death away from me. My death is the thing that I must do. And it is the thing that I must do. Whatever else I may or may not be responsible for, I must die. And so that obligation on me is the birth of my responsibility. The promise of my death is a gift to me. It is the gift of possibility. If I can take responsibility for this death, I could take responsibility for all kinds of life. So I am not convinced that we need this God to address us in order for us to become responsible individuals, concludes Heidegger, fixing them each with a look. The inevitability of our death is the gift that already constitutes us as individuals capable of acting responsibly says Moses, I think Sorin might have some things to say about some things that I have written. Yes, okay, says Kierkegaard. It was me I wrote as Johannes de Silentio, John of the Silence, to keep my secret. But you've exposed my pseudonym, Moses, so let me tell you the story. This was what I wrote about fear and trembling. The story of Abraham and how he sacrifices his son, Isaac. It is the most terrible story. It makes us tremble even as we read it. The horrific account of this barbaric father. It goes against every standard of ethics imaginable. By every principle, this is an atrocity. And yet Abraham keeps a secret, a secret from his wife, from his servant, even from Isaac himself. When Isaac, his son, asks, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers without answering. He says that Elohim will provide it. It's not a lie. It's not an answer. And Abraham carries his secret because He has responded to an other, to this unseen God who addresses him. Everything in the standard of ethics says, don't do this. Everything that might involve his own posterity, his own descendants, this thing he's been waiting for involves the life of Isaac. And yet he's still willing to put him to death. He loves the boy. He is his only son if he didn't love him, if this wasn't everything, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. This isn't duty. This is mad love for God, says Kierkegaard. There is no reason for this. It is the most monstrous thing. Abraham simply responds to this demand of this great other. And then, Derrida says, what to me is one of the most incredible lines in the whole history of 20th century philosophy. He says, But isn't this also the most common thing? God, as the other, binds me in this sense of obligation and responsibility towards him. But I cannot act responsibly towards every other who makes a demand on me. In making this podcast... I decided not to go and hang out with some friends. I'm doing this podcast in English. So there are people who don't speak English. You can't access it. I decide to look after my children. And so I'm not taking in Syrian migrants who are fleeing war. Or maybe I did take some in, but then I can't take all of them. What about all the people suffering from famine? What about all the people who are now going to be victims of climate change? The responsibility of the world is absolutely endless and immense. There is no way that I can fulfill my responsibility to everyone. And this, says Derrida, is the power of the story of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Ishmael as it appears in the Islamic tradition. It is the conundrum of responsibility. To whom do we respond? It is the sheer fact of the offense of acting against his vulnerable child that exposes in this stark and powerful way the demand that comes from everywhere on each of us to make responsible choices in the world. And there is simply no way to fulfill them all. We can never respond to every other who demands of us. Not only that, says Derrida, But the unthinkable nature of this sacrifice, it's impossible to imagine that anything other than the absolute condemnation of Abraham could happen in any civilized modern society. And yet, on the other hand, isn't the smooth functioning, I'm quoting now, the smooth functioning of such a society, the monotonous complacency of its discourses on morality Politics and the law, the very exercise of its rights, whether public, private, national or international, are in no way perturbed by the fact that because of the structure of the laws of the market that society has instituted and controls, because of the mechanisms of external debt and other comparable inequities, that same society puts to death or allows to die of hunger and disease, tens of millions of children, without any moral or legal tribunal ever being considered competent to judge such a sacrifice. Not only does such a society participate in this incalculable sacrifice, it actually organises it. The smooth functioning of its economic, political and good conscience presuppose the permanent operation Of this sacrifice. And he goes on to say it's not even invisible. We show it on the TV, but we manage it within our conscience. Abraham sacrifices Isaac every day on Mount Moriah, and we are numb to it. All manner of destruction and devastation mandated by the way that we have organized our societies to live, these are not remembered. We will all stop today. And remember those who lost their lives in conflict. But why do we not also stop regularly and remember those species we have exterminated? Those workers who made our clothes, who farmed our food. Those children who went down dangerous mines, forgoing their education to mine the minerals that make the devices on which you are listening to this podcast. When do we remember them? When do we remember Isaac? And the monstrous sacrifice. This ethical relation is overwhelming, it seems to me. That on the one hand, such sacrifice is made for us to live the way we live. And yet at the same time, through this same story, the realization that the demand of every other can never be met. We will never satisfy That demand for justice is simply is impossible for me or you as an individual to respond to everybody who makes a legitimate ethical demand on my time, my resource, my energy, my love. But there's a final move in this Parisian cafe conversation. Kierkegaard plays on the idea of the secret. It's a secret we've tracked in this conversation through Patochka. His idea of the secret mystery embodied in the pagan, animalistic, orgiastic rituals that becomes disavowed but included in the secret mystery of the good, the pure, in Plato's philosophy, that then is incorporated but repressed by Christianity, which is the mysterium tremendum, the awe-inspiring mystery or secret. And there is Abraham's secret that he carries with him, He does not tell anyone that he is taking his son to the mountain of Moriah. But Kierkegaard, at least as Derrida reads him, invokes the gospel of Matthew as he says, For he, that's God the Father, sees in secret and recognizes distress and counts the tears and forgets nothing. Kierkegaard is speaking of Abraham. But Derrida reads in that this allusion to Matthew and Jesus' sermon on the mount. Words about how we should give without expecting to be seen because God sees what is done in secret. It's repeated in several different ways throughout that sermon, says Derrida. And that idea of repaying what is done in secret is evoked by the story of Abraham who, in acting upon his secret to sacrifice his son, is stopped and given by God a new promise that he will have descendants. What is the structure of that reward? It is always overdone. Derrida continues to quote Matthew's gospel, the idea that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't return an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but turn the other cheek. Do more. There is an excess in this response. Perhaps that is also part of this genealogy of responsibility. There's a rustling behind them in the corner of the cafe. And out of the shadows, a man leans forward and a blisteringly bushy moustache comes into view. Frederick! cries Heidegger. Hello, Nietzsche, says Moses. Did someone say genealogy? says Nietzsche. I wrote the book on this. And opening his genealogy of morality, he reads... Justice, which began by saying, everything can be paid off, everything must be paid off, ends by turning a blind eye and letting off those unable to pay. It ends, like every good thing on earth, by sublimating itself. The self-sublimation of justice remains, of course, the prerogative of the most powerful man. It's better still, his way of being beyond the law. In other words, says Derrida, when Jesus makes an account of God as paying back, of requiring more, cutting off your hand for a misdemeanor, lavishing grace out upon those who don't deserve, this is what happens to justice. It begins as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the law cannot sustain itself. It always self-sublimates. It always moves beyond itself so that we talk about justice as the restoration of things, not as simple retribution. Justice becomes an idea that reaches beyond, not simply levels out. We are inheritors, like it or not, of this Christian European genealogy our ideas about responsibility and ethics come to us via that trajectory via that evolution we understand ourselves as bestowed with the capacity for action the ability to respond and therefore we are responsible for our actions and we must answer to justice as a result and yet even in our post-christian Consciousness lingers this idea of this absolutely excessive demand. The relationship from a God that we cannot see, who gives himself infinitely, who gives everything out of love, sacrificing himself. For many that comes as good news. But Nietzsche chips in. This hubris of sacrifice, this is... Christianity's stroke of genius. God paying himself back for his own debt, says Nietzsche. Would you credit it? Can you credit it? It's the prerogative of the most powerful man. But what does it do to justice? Well, this is where Derrida's book ends. And in my mind, it's a superb exploration of the problem of responsibility, the conundrum of the extent to which we are able to formulate a response to all of the infinite number of ethical demands that press themselves upon us. If we invoke God to pull us beyond straightforward notions of justice as repayment, then what is to stop every strong man moving beyond justice for their own gains? If, on the other hand, we reduce every decision to following the law, then what is there that pulls us beyond mere duty, which really is no agency or responsibility at all? Can we move beyond God and still retain our subjectivity? Would to do that be to keep God, but disguise him as some other character more suitable to our post-Christian world? Or can we face death as a gift and live authentically as a response? These are deep questions which we will come back to several times over the course of this voyage, which is really the story of the law. What is this law? And as readers, what is our relationship to it? But to end here, I want to move beyond Derrida But return to his cafe, since this is really all in my imagination. I want to give the floor one last time to Moses for one final twist. I am not sure what story you have been reading, he says. One of those English language translations, no doubt. With their God this, God that, Lord this single monotheist, foundation of all addressing me from afar. Have you not read the story? There's a whole audio version available at BiblePirate.com. The story begins not with God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son and then God speaking down and telling him to stop, but Elohim calling Abraham to sacrifice his son but then Yahweh calling down and telling him to stop. This is a much more complex story than simply a tale of God as other. This is a story about the fractured nature of our identities and the pluralist nature of all our ethical responses. Are we ever just constituted as one thing and not another? I have to catch a train, says Moses, but we'll return here, mark my words. And he picks up his cloak, and with that he's gone. There's a long way still to travel, me The water is getting choppy, but this is a voyage full of such meaning for me. I'm so glad you're coming with me. Until next time, we remember all the dead and I'll see you again for more Stories Beyond the Horizon.